John Saul, suspense writing. Isadora Duncan. <laughs> this is not an affectation. I've really got a sore throat. Is Patty here? I've been trying to get rid of Patty's book. Patty. Patty, I love you. Patty. Patty? I saw her at the wine and cheese party. She was only half smashed. Patty. She bought the book. I signed it. I'm stuck with it. Um, every, every story that we write, from Little Miss Muffet to Moby Dick or whatever, should have some suspense to it, obviously. And here to tell us about our master of suspense is Leonard Turney, who isn't such a bad, uh, bad hand at it himself. Leonard? Thank you, Isadora. I'd always wanted to be introduced by Isadora uh, Duncan, and, and uh, well, she's changed. <laughs> um, I'm uh, happy to have the opportunity of, of uh, introducing tonight an author who um, has been so successful and also whose works are written with such a deep and abiding faith in the pleasure that we all take in experiencing the vicarious terror of other folks. I just finished uh, reading John Saul's book, The Unloved, uh, very early this morning, maybe about 6.30, which may suggest something about the time I have to get up these days, which make um, these qualities so attractive to those of us who, uh, in our normal lives, uh, are terrified by such things as uh, uh, the need for a new water pump, <laughs> um, a, a call to the plumber, <laughs> um, a late night call from a teenager. I, I suppose ultimately what it is is that we uh, enjoy the discovery that there really are some people whose lives are really much more terrifying than our own. But I think we all appreciate that, uh, understand that it is not easy to create in a work of fiction, the kind of sustained anxiety and terror that a real master of the genre can create and sustain. I won't tell you much more about John Saul than, than uh, to remind you that he has, over the last ten, 10 or 12 years, written um, as many books. Many of you uh, have enjoyed them, and tonight you'll have the pleasure of uh, hearing him talk about them himself. So I give you John Saul. John. I brought a prop bag. I can't really imagine why anybody wants to hear an after-dinner speaker when no one gave them dinner, but here I am. And I was sort of misbilled. According to the poop sheet I read, I'm supposed to talk about suspense writing, and I'm not going to do that. Uh, I may easily do it at a, at a later point when we get into the question and answers, which should easily be four minutes from now, because if I could talk, I probably wouldn't write. That's the primary motivation. You're wondering what I'm doing here, aren't you? Well, there are these things I have that I went shopping for today called books. And in here I have scribbled notes. And 
down here I have a phone number and here I have a cute little outline on how to write a thriller in six pages. This is a bag. The books are because basically we're all here for one reason. We are writers and we are here because we hope that somebody is someday going to publish us. And since I, at the very beginning of my career, decided that I was not going to write the great American novel, partly because, of course, I don't have the talent to write the great American novel, and partly because I'm not sure there is such a thing as a great American novel, I decided that the next best thing was to make money. And amazingly enough, the bestseller list is where the money is. So what we really want to know is not how to get published, but how to write a bestseller. The best way to do that is do market analysis, which is how I got into the business. Years ago, before I knew there was such a thing as a writer's conference, I was operating in a vacuum. I had decided to be a writer when I was about 18. Uh, college was not going well. I think I went five years to four schools, and finally I decided that I was going to drop out. A decision I'd made several years before consecutively and instead of simply changed schools. That year when I decided to drop out, the school had decided to drop me out so the question was moot and I was not able to make my pious speech about how this school is not really doing anything for me because they were quite willing to tell me how little I was doing for them. So there I was, 21 years old, signing my name John Saul N.D. for no degree and wondering what to do. And the uh, answer was obvious, since I had never been to a writer's conference, knew nothing about publishing, knew nothing about writing, and I thought, well, anyone can make a living writing books, so I will write books for a living. Somehow, over the next 15 years, when no one paid me five cents for anything, I managed to sustain that. Uh, I did all kinds of wonderful things. I rented cars uh, all over Los Angeles. Car rental is wonderful for starving artists, writers, and actors because if you're smart enough not to go to work for Hertz and Avis where they really believe in car rentals, you go to work for the independents who basically, even the president of the company wants to be something else. And so... If the president of the company walks in on Sunday afternoon when your office on South Figueroa and finds you banging on a typewriter instead of washing cars, he's forgiving because he knows that you never wanted to rent cars in the first place. So I did that for a long time, and then as a starving writer, I did learn certain skills, and 95 words a minute as a typist was one of them. So I was a Western girl in San Francisco for a while. That. That took Western Girl a little bit of back when I was walking down Market Street one day, unemployed as per usual, and uh, had just had the ugly experience of going into the unemployment office to start the checks a-rolling. And they produced my file and said, oh yes, Mr. Saul, you are qualified. However, your benefit is going to be zero dollars per week because during the benefit quarter, and I scratched my head and they said that was two and a half years ago, they said, you were working for a nonprofit company, and therefore they were exempt from contributing to unemployment, and while you are quite eligible, there's no money. So I decided it was time to get serious about writing. So I trotted myself home, and I remembered that when I was doing my one year at Antioch, uh, the first school I bombed out of, 
there was someone who was bragging around that he'd written a book in a weekend and actually gotten it published. I had heard the same story about John O'Hara and the appointment at Samara, and I figured somewhere between bimbos of Bingham Hall and appointment in Samara, I too can write a book in a weekend. So I sat down to write a little epic called Sindal Ella. Sindal Ella was a sweet young girl from Stockton, and she arrived in San Francisco one day and immediately went wrong. And after slutting around San Francisco for several months, and 16 chapters of 10 pages each, 27 lines to the page, 12 and 72 margins, thank you very much. She got busted. And after getting busted, back in those days when you wrote that sort of thing, there had to be a morally redeeming, socially valuable ending to the book. So naturally, Cinderella thought better of her wicked, wicked ways, and she opened a flower shop on Polk Street. So I sat down on Friday night after the unemployment people told me that I was certifiably broke and began writing Sindal's lovely story. And lo and behold, on Sunday night I finished page 160. And then I said, now what do I do with this manuscript? So I checked around in my network of publishing friends, which was basically anyone who had ever heard of anyone who might have worked in the publishing house anywhere. And he said, yes, as a matter of fact, I do know someone who's interested in pornography. He works for a Bible publishing house in Beverly Hills. <laughs> so I said, great, that's fine with me. So the manuscript went over to the Bible publishing house and the guy bought it for $160 cash money on the barrel head, which was a lot of money for me. So I thought, aha, I do have a future as a writer after all. I can grind out pornography forever and a day. So I sat down to write the next one and that one worked out quite well and I got myself into a routine. Now that I was solid, I didn't have to do a book in a weekend, I allowed myself four days. And I would write on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at the rate of 40 pages a day. And on Friday, I would read over the manuscript. And back in those days, and I don't suppose it's changed much, what you got paid for was how close you came to the 160 pages they wanted. It all had to do with setting it in type and what's the most economical way to print books. And 160 pages, 27 lines to a page, pica type, 12 and 72 margins was the formula. So Friday morning was the day that I either added or subtracted pages rather than have dollars added or subtracted from my paycheck. And then I would send it off to the publisher who was a lovely little building way out in the San Fernando Valley. You sort of, you got in your car and you took out Satakoy Boulevard and you crossed seven sets of railroad tracks and then there was a warehouse. You drove around the corner of the warehouse and there was a blank door and that was the publisher. So I would send these little epics out, and all went well until one day I got up and I said, okay, John, what's the fetish of the week? <laughs> By then, of course, I had really gotten into the seamier side of toes. <laughs> and I decided I was going to go to the beach. So I went to the beach, and that was the end of my career in pornography because I decided I had had it with new fetishes. So I came home to write a play. And I, I spent the week at the beach, and uh, then I sat down to write the play, and it got very depressing because everyone kept trotting off stage to go to bed. 
and I discovered that pornography had become habit forming. So I stopped writing entirely, and that's when I became a Western girl, because by then, when you're writing 40 pages a day, 95 words a minute is not terribly difficult. So I was a Western girl for a very long time, and then I finally decided, okay, time to get serious about this writing thing. I know this is an easy way to make a living. I mean, my God, my best year, I must have made somewhere close to $1,200. <laughs> so I decided, knowing nothing about marketing, and never having talked to an editor or an agent, that comedy murder mystery was where my fortune was. I'm going to write the most hysterically funny murder mystery anyone's ever seen. So I sat down to write it, and I got it done, working evenings, as all good writers do. And then I was faced with, oh dear, the porn house isn't going to want this one because there isn't any good sex in it. So I got my network going again, and lo and behold, I knew someone who actually knew someone who claimed they were a literary agent. So I got all excited, and my friend said, sure, I'll give my friend the script. He'll do me uh, the book. He'll do me a favor and read it, which he did. And in the fullness of time, which was many weeks, I got the manuscript back with a very polite letter saying that the agent who heretofore had billed himself as handling book manuscripts was now only handling screenplays and television plays. And perhaps I would do better to have a New York literary agency. And here were the names of two to whom I could send the manuscript. Privately to my friend, he said, I brushed him off. The guy's got no talent, but I sent him the names of a couple of sap agents who can't do anything. I, of course, didn't hear this until I'd already sent my great pride and joy off to the first name on the list. And since the man's dead, I can name him. His name was Kurt Helmer, and he had an office on Vanderbilt Avenue just across the dumpsters from Grand Central Station. I, of course, didn't know that. I thought Vanderbilt Avenue sounded pretty good. I'm a West Coast boy. I've never been to New York. Sounds good to me. And lo and behold, Bang, back comes a letter signing me to the Helmer Agency. I am a great talent. They are going to sell my book. And they had turned me over to a star of their office by the name of Jane Rutt-Rosen. Well, I got a letter from Ms. Rutt-Rosen a couple of weeks after that, and the letter was very hopeful. She was quite certain the book was going to sell. And the reason she was truly interested in me was her maiden name was Saul. And she thought Jane Saul representing John Saul was absolutely too cute to pass up. <laughs> I didn't discover until three years later that when she got my manuscript, she had been an agent for precisely two days, having had no experience in publishing whatsoever. She had, however, been walking up Fifth Avenue one day when she ran into a friend who was fed up with her job at the Helmer Agency and had just quit. And Jane had decided she wanted to work, which was something she'd never done before in her life. So she trotted herself into the Helmer Agency and volunteered to take over this high-powered position. So I became her first client. I am happy to say that she is still my agent. Uh, she did her damnedest with the comedy murder mystery. At last count, she had sent it to 23 publishers, all of whom had said, 
Well, this is all very fun, but there's really no market for comedy murder mysteries. She finally passed that bit of information back to me about two years later. Uh, I sent her another manuscript that I got a nice letter back saying, Dear Mr. Saul, I have read this manuscript. I do not understand why you wrote it. I am certainly unwilling to risk my reputation in publishing by showing this manuscript to anyone. If you feel moved to write another manuscript like this, please do not bother to send it to me. So I got on my high horse and said, well, who needs her? As it turned out, of course, I did desperately. So I didn't speak to her for about a year. And then I found myself in New York for a drug and alcohol abuse convention because by then I'd given up typing in favor of being a secretary. And I, I was a secretary for the director of a drug and alcoholism program in Wisconsin at that point. And so off we went to the New York, uh, the National Drug Abuse Conference in New York. And I thought, gee, there is this agent I used to know. Maybe I ought to call her. So I called the Helmer Agency and was promptly told that Kurt Helmer was dead and Jane Rosen had moved on. And I said, being a very bright young man, does that mean that I'm not represented? And they allowed us how since the agent who'd signed me was dead, probably I was without representation. And they did have a phone number for Jane Rosen. So I called her and she did remember me, since Jane Saul and John Saul, it's easy to remember. And she said, yeah, you might as well come over and we'll talk. So she gave me her address on East 48th Street. And I, being a West Coast boy, assumed that it went 100 per block. And so I figured that 140 East 48th Street was going to be a block and a half off Fifth. So I put on my little suit and my little tie and trotted myself off and got there 15, 20 minutes late for the appointment. I'm gonna go see this big time literary agent and I'm late. So I thought, well, I might as well quit now. I better go back to the hotel. She's not going to see me by now. She's got you know, Norman Mailer sitting in her office by this point. But I thought, oh, I've walked this far. I'm sweaty, by God, I'm gonna go. So I went and I was ushered into the offices of a major New York literary agency, which turned out to be a one-bedroom apartment, the bedroom of which had been divided in two with plywood. And Jane was sleeping behind the plywood on the sort of cot affair. She had an assistant who was operating in the other half of the bedroom, and the bedroom, of course, was only about 10 feet wide to start with. She was operating out of the living room, and she sat me down to talk about publishing. In the meantime, she'd reread the manuscript she had so egregiously insulted only two short years earlier, and decided that times had changed, she had changed, publishing had changed, and perhaps there was a market for this after all. So she would take on this manuscript, and then she told me, she started telling me the real truth about publishing. She said, well, your name is an advantage, and I said, I beg your pardon, and she said, well, John Saul, Four letters per name, short name, they can put it in big type at the top of the book. Okay, that's, that's in my favor. At the time, I still had hair. And she said, you're reasonably presentable. It seems like you can talk in complete sentences. You're promotable. That's in your favor. Now all we need is a book. 
Okay, says moi, a book. Yes, I said, well, says I, what I'm working on currently is a CB trucker book. Remember when CBs and truckers were hot, hot, hot? <laughs> it's going to be a thriller, says I, and it's going to be wonderful. I have no idea what it's going to be at this point because there's nothing on paper. So I trotted back to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and began working on my CB trucker epic. And it kept getting larger and larger. I had no idea where it was going, so having finished half of it, I sent it to the agent, figuring maybe someone else can figure out where it's going. She took it over to Dell Publishing, which was conveniently located half a block down the street from her apartment, and handed it to an editor who read through it and said, well, I have my CB trucker book. By the time this one's done, CBs and truckers are going to be dead, dead, dead. Who needs it? However, she said, what we really need is a psychological occult thriller. Do you think this young man might be interested in trying his hand at that? So Jane called me up and said, do you think you might be able to write a psychological occult thriller? And I said, say what? And she said, psychological occult thriller. And I said, what's that? And she said, the kind of thing Stephen King writes. And I said, who's Stephen King? She said, you might go down to the market in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and do a little market research. So I thought, well, that's a clever idea. So off I went to the local supermarket, which had a nice paperback book rack, and I started looking at the titles. And at the time, Audrey Rose was on the paperback bestseller list, and Salem's Lot was on the paperback bestseller list. I think Carrie was still carrying, since Stephen seems to have this ungodly talent for cluttering up the list. <laughs> and so I read the backs of all these books, and lo and behold, it seemed they were all filled with dead children. I thought, oh, hell, I can kill children as good as anybody. <laughs> so went home and whipped up the outline for Suffer the Children and sent it off to New York. Well, she'd also said, send an outline in the first chapter. I said, what's an outline? And she said, well, what you want to do is you want to describe what's going to happen in the book. Okay. So the outline was about 24, 25 pages. And as I was writing the chapter, I realized that chapter one was really dull. It was all exposition. And I looked at the outline and realized chapter three, four, and five are really dull, too. I thought, well, this will never do. This is going to bore them all to tears. So I sat down and I decided, I'm going to write a prologue in which something really awful is going to happen, and somehow I'll figure out how it ties into the story later on. But at least it will grab the reader's attention and carry them through all this boring exposition when I'm laying out who's going to be in the story. So I wrote the prologue that involved a lot of dead rabbits and some father raping his four-year-old, which I thought was pretty tasteful at the time, <laughs> and uh, sent the thing off. And then is when it all got very freaky, because, of course, at this point, I'm absolutely nobody from nowhere. And so Jane called back the next day, and she said, um, I've decided I'm not going to give this outline to Dell after all. I've decided it's too good for Dell. And I thought... What is going on here? Then she called back and said, as it turns out, I have to give it to Dell because Linda Gray pointed out that it was she who suggested you might try a psychological occult thriller in the first place, and she feels I have a moral obligation to at least let her look at it. 
So I gave it to her with a stipulation that she can have it on Friday, but she has to have her offer on my desk by Monday morning. Uh, what is this nonsense? It takes months to make a book deal. So Monday afternoon, Jane called and said, well, I have the offer, and I asked for twice as much as I figured Dell would ever pay for anything for a first novel from an unknown for an original paperback, and they're paying the price, so Dell is going to publish the book. And I thought, oh, well, that's very nice. And then she said, there is, however, a catch. This was November 26th of 1976. And I said, oh, what's the catch? And she said, well, the, the problem is that they want to publish the book in June, which means they have to have a completed manuscript by January. Do you think you can do that? Well, I thought, I looked at the calendar, okay, it's 26 chapters. I'm an old pornography hand, I can do anything. So I said, sure, no problem. 28 chapters, 28 days, what the hell? I mean, they were like, going to write me a check, for God's sake, you know? <laughs> so I sat down to start writing the book, and then I, the contract arrived, and the contract was wonderful. It specified that I was to get one-third of my money on signing the contract, which I thought was really nice, and it would take care of the back bills. Then I was going to get uh, one-third of the money on half completion of the manuscript, and I was to get the rest of the money on completion of the manuscript. So I thought, oh, this is great. So I signed my name, I sent that contract back. I even went down to the post office to express mail, because I'm hungry. That was when I discovered that I can write a book faster than a publisher can write a check. The manuscript was done on December 16th, and I think I got the on-signing check sometime towards the end of February. At that point, uh, things kept getting a little more bizarre. Uh, they had slotted Suffer the Children to be the number two lead in paperback publishing. Uh, I don't know how many of you are real familiar with the business of paperback publishing. I'm gonna assume you knew about what I knew. And basically what happens is they had this nifty list of books. And uh, each month they're publishing, at that time they were publishing about 12 titles a month. And I, of course, being something of a snoop, when I was in New York, uh, they put me in an office to do the rewrites. And the first thing I did was rifle the desk of the editor whose office it was. And I found the list of titles for the upcoming year. And I noticed a very peculiar correlation between the amount they had paid for the manuscript and the position it occupied on the list. The more money they'd spent to acquire it, the higher it was on the list and the more they were going to push it. And at the time, Suffer the Children was number two on the June list. Number one was a little book called Slide. It involved six people trapped in a safe way in Southern California after a mudslide. And as the months went by, slide slid from number one in the lead to number two lead, and Helen Myers, who at the time was still running Dell totally, came to a few decisions. Helen Myers was a remarkable woman. Helen Myers, among other things, invented the movie magazine and the comic book. And uh, 
she had already sold Dell to Doubleday at that point, but she was still running the contract, running the company entirely herself. And she was getting towards retirement, and she decided that she wanted to do one more experiment in publishing before she retired. The experiment was whether or not she could shove a paperback original down America's throat. She wanted to put an unknown first novelist original paperback on the New York Times bestseller list. I was very fortunate in that I was the man she picked to do this with. And she agreed to buy the book for more money than she ever paid for an unknown hack. And then she decided that she was going to back Suffer the Children in paperback with network television advertising. Nobody had ever done it before. It was absolutely unheard of. But Helen figured she didn't care what nobody had ever done before, so she did it. And lo and behold, one day in Oshkosh, I'm watching a soap opera, and comes a commercial, and it's for my book. And she published a whole lot of them. There was one wonderful moment when they brought in the cover proofs for her. To, it was her last minute to decide, is the cover right? And it was a gorgeous cover. It was a black background with silver foil embossed title. She looked at it, and she said, it's wrong. And Linda sort of cowered, and she said, I want choir boy blue. Well, she just published Joseph Wambaugh's Choir Boys in a very dark blue cover, very successfully, and she decided that Choir Boy Blue was the, uh, the color of the year. So she had them destroy all one million covers that they'd already printed, and to redo them in Choir Boy Blue with gold foil. One of them happened to slip through, and I own it, it, uh, it missed one of the presses, and it's this wonderful choir boy blue background, and it has a figure of a doll with its arm torn off and it's bleeding into a teacup. The only thing lacking is my name and the title of the book. <laughs> I subsequently submitted it to Dell as my submission for an untitled con novel that I was under contract for, but they didn't buy it. So anyway, uh, everything went fine. She printed a hell of a lot of copies. Uh, my first experience with publishing was walking into a bookstore in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and seeing my book on the day of the publication as the number four bestseller, which I thought was rather intriguing, considering nobody at all had bought it yet. <laughs> That's when I found out another truth about publishing. The bestseller list, this wonderful stack of books here is the current one, is not really reflective of what people have bought. It is, however, reflective of what they are going to buy, because in publishing, as in practically everything else, the assumption is people will want something you can make them think everybody else wants. So if you print a whole lot of books and you do television advertising, and you convince all the wholesalers to buy a hell of a lot of books, where are they going to put them? They're going to put them in the bestseller slots. And everyone's going to think, oh, everyone's reading that book, I better read it too. And then you hope that enough people buy into this that they buy the book and they read the book and they tell their friends, gee, that's a pretty good book after all. And it either flies or it dies. 
fortunately, Suffer the Children happened to fly, and it did take off, and it was a wonderful success. And the rest, as they say, is history. I'm now in the nice position of putting out one of these little epics every year, and it always winds up in those wonderful slots. And if you print that many copies and throw them out there, some are bound to stick, and they seem to be sticking. So having done that sort of market analysis and figured out what's selling, I thought it might be nice if we went over what's selling now so some of you can go out and do your market analysis, figure out what's hot, what's selling, and how can you do this yourself, and what credentials do you need in order to do it. So I trotted myself down to several bookstores today, and I found out some interesting things. I went into five stores. All five stores had completely different titles in the bestseller section. <laughs> few overlaps, not a whole lot, but a few. Uh, I discovered that while Walden is still listing them one through ten, and Walden is interesting in that it is probably the only dead honest bestseller list in the country because the Walden bestseller list comes directly off cash register sales. So if you really want to know what's selling, check Walden. Dalton is no longer advertising them in the order. They are simply saying these are the ten bestsellers and they are in no particular order. Uh, the other stores I went into were supermarkets and drugstores because I'm a firm believer that I can live without the bookstores as long as I have the supermarkets and the drugstores. And they had a whole different batch of books and they were all in the one, two, three, four slot and I assume that if there are any local authors they've been out dressing the racks and changing them around as I did because my editor had told me number four wasn't good enough and I should put Suffer the Children in the number one slot, which led to a wonderful scene of me in a shopping center taking, uh, it was the last Jackie Suzanne book, it was Dolores, it was, they printed the outline, it was about this thick, and it was the number one slot and I'm switching the books. <laughs> and I dropped all of them. So there I was, scrabbling around the floor of the shopping center, sorting books and trying to pile them onto the back onto the racks without looking ridiculous. Anyway, I finally decided I was going to go for the B. Dalton list, which is in no particular order, which means that I am going to present them in no particular order. And what I'm going to do is talk about what sort of categories they fit into, how things have changed over the years, what of these books you could possibly write, and what you shouldn't try to write, for whatever reasons. And we might as well start off, since I am a Bantam author, with Louis L'Amour. Louis L'Amour needs no explanation. Louis L'Amour is the absolute master of the Western genre that man damn near invented. If he didn't invent it, he certainly made it his own over a lot of years. And we have unfortunately lost Louis last week. Uh, we're all going to miss him a whole lot. Being crassly commercial, I regard this as a slot that is waiting to be filled. So if anyone out there is interested in writing westerns, I can tell you that there is certainly a very large publishing house that is going to be looking for a truly fabulous western writer. As it happens, westerns are on the upswing right now. They were in pretty much eclipse for a long time. They seem to be coming back in great numbers. Uh, at this point, I think we ought to talk about a little bit about the difference between a category book and a genre book. Louis L'Amour is genre. He writes a very thick, well-thought-out, beautifully-constructed novel. 
There is, on the other hand, the category Western. And the best way to tell the difference is you turn the book this way and the category Western comes up to about here. The manuscript was 160 pages long, 27 lines to a page, pica type with margins of 12 and 72. You aren't going to get rich off category westerns. On the other hand, Zane Grey did not starve. So it's something to think about. Westerns are very hot right now. It was interesting in that there were on the, currently on the B. Dalton list are three basically category genre books. Second one, L. Ron Hubbard. Sci-fi, always good. Sci-fi certainly is also both category and genre. With L. Ron Hubbard, of course, it helps if you can go out and found a religious cult, spread rumors that you're dead, disappear and make no comment as to whether you're alive or not. Uh, this gets you a lot of free publicity. You don't have to do interviews, which is really nice. Um, I have never read an L. Ron Hubbard. I can't really tell you what this is about. But I did notice that this book seems to be new. It's mystically published by something called Bridge Publications in Los Angeles, uh, which I am assuming has something to do with Scientology, but I wouldn't want to swear to it. Given that L. Ron Hubbard is presumably dead, and this is being billed as the first of ten volumes, all ten of which are listed in the order they will be published, I'm wondering what exactly is going on with L. Ron Hubbard. Now, there is the possibility that one of you out there could read this book very carefully, figure out what his style is, figure out how it's constructed, and since he doesn't seem to be willing to either confirm or deny anything, you could claim you are L. Ron Hubbard <laughs> and possibly make a fortune. Next is... Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, the Dark Sword Trilogy. Okay, here we have, the cover pretty much says it. We got our hero with his sword. We got somebody with three rings of fire. You, you gotta find out why the three rings of fire. You've got the dark hooded creature in the background and you've got the forest, okay? This is J.R.R. Tolkien. This is Terry Brooks. This is fantasy, which also, again, seems to be a genre that is coming up rapidly. It, it, it peaked with Tolkien 20 years ago. It seemed to go into a lull for a while, and now it seems to be coming back very strong. I know Terry Brooks is doing very, very well. He is currently in a position where his publisher, well, of course, since Judy Lynn died, Terry's all they have left. But Delray publishes Terry, and they are currently happily publishing him in hardcover trade paperback and paperback simultaneously, which is a very neat trick, but the books seem to be selling very rapidly. Fantasy, of course, is kind of fun. You make it all up as you go along. You're dealing with elves, dwarves, fairies, and that sort of thing. You need your handsome protagonist and Princess Leia somewhere out of the spaceship, uh, a couple of stock villains, and away you go. You create a nice Garden of Eden, a makeup kingdom. And the great thing about fantasy is it's almost like psychological occult fiction. Since it is fantasy, absolutely anything can be gotten away with, and you don't have to deal with reality. Uh, that's why I write fiction. I'm not good with research. And since fiction is basically lying, it, it makes it wide open. So here we have basically three category books, all of which are on the national bestseller list. 
Then we get on to the always ever popular, look lady, read this and you can get laid next week book. <laughs> this must be the 500th of these books around. I think Price Stern finally came out with the ultimate one, stupid books and the stupid women who buy them. And by God, they're selling a lot of copies of that one, too. This, this is your standard. Are you a little schnook who works in an office and wants to find Mr. Wright? Read this. We can tell you how. We have two doctors here. I don't notice any credentials in the back of this book. There may actually be legitimate credentials. On the other hand, it only costs $23 to send to a mail-order catalog and get yourself a Ph.D., and then you too can be a doctor and make up nifty case histories that happen to fit whatever facts you're trying to promulgate. And lo and behold, you have one of these little epics, and that is guaranteed income. Okay, now we get into the balance here. Well, oh hell, let's get Stephen out of the way now. Good old Steve. He was on the racks when I started. He's still on the racks. You can't go into a bookstore or a supermarket or a drugstore anywhere without running into Stephen King. The man is doing something right. One of the things he's doing right is writing 365 days a year. No, pardon me, it's 364. He takes Christmas off. Eight hours a day. And he is turning them out like crazy. This is, I believe, the fourth bestseller for this year. There is a rumor that I am hoping is founded, but suspect is a big lie, that Stephen's not planning to publish anything next year, which would be really nice for me. <laughs> I do not believe the rumor because I also am given to understand that Stephen has 85 manuscripts in the trunk just waiting to be passed out to the hungry public. Uh, an interesting sidebar here is V.C. Andrews, who I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. I was sort of invented to compete with Stephen. Uh, Simon Schuster invented VC to compete with me. And very successfully, I might add. Uh, both of them seem to have left me in the dust very comfortably. VC, as I'm sure you're all aware, has gone on to the great iron lung in the sky. And uh, when she died, she left three manuscripts, which Pocket Books is guarding very carefully in Ann Patty's desk drawer. And a few months back, I was in New York and ran into Anne. And I said, I understand that you have three more VCs. And she smiled very bright and said, oh, no, John, we have six. I said, there are six now. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, that VC is breeding in Anne Patty's desk. Okay. So, having taken care of those, we come up to this great lump of books. Wait a minute. No, I have one more that doesn't fit in with the lump. Stephen is in with the lump. Pardon me, Stephen. God forbid I should take you out of a lump. Janet Daly. We all know Janet Daly, right? Janet Daly started when I did. I currently bantam brags, mind you, that I have 20 million copies of my books in print. Janet Daly started the same year. This woman has 128 million copies of her books in print. This woman is something else. She has, since 1975, turned out 80 books. 
A lot of them romances. She was writing simultaneously for Harlequin and Silhouette, sometimes two titles per month per publisher. She then has branched out and gone into the bigger books. You can see this is not of category thickness. She is the quintessential romance writer. She and Danielle Steele really have a lock on it. Uh, but it has been, up until the last couple of years, a market that was absolutely wide open. Romances, I'm sure you all know, were absolutely the hottest thing in the market. It got to the point where I think 48% of all bought, books bought were romances. You want to find out how to write a romance? Read Janet Daly, read Danielle Steele, figure out what they're doing. Danielle, of course, has a little secret. Danielle writes best when she's unhappy, which may account for the number of husbands she's had. She seems to be averaging about two books per marriage at the moment. I, I don't know how that's going to hold up over time. Danielle is also an interesting story because Danielle also started when I did. Uh, in fact, I think the Promise was published contemporaneously with Stuff of the Children. The Promise was a movie tie-in. Uh, some company had decided that they had this really hot screenplay that they were going to film, and they decided that they wanted a novelization. At the time, in Dell's stable of romance writers, they had a contract player named Danielle Steele, who was a writer for hire. Writer for hire is an ugly little term, which means flat fee, no royalties. And so they gave her her $2,500, and she did the novelization of The Promise. The movie was never released. It was seen at an ABA, and the audience stormed out raging. But they all went over to Dell and ordered the book. And Danielle, for her $2,500, managed to sell 3.5 million copies of that book. Dell has, of course, subsequently made it all worth Danielle's while. She did get the payoff in the end, and she's still doing very, very well. This, however, was interesting. Three years ago, you could go and do a little market survey, and you would see five of these on the bestseller racks. Now it's one. What we have five of now is these. They're all thrillers of one variety or another. There's Stephen. This one I understand is interesting in that it manages to be both a thriller and a romance. It involves a romance writer whose fan kills her. It sounds vaguely familiar, but then we don't all know about Harold Robbins, do we? Uh, the other thrillers that we have, here's two. This is neat. Two identical books simultaneously on the bestseller list. We have here The Flight of the Old Dog, and we have here Winterhawk, which is basically Firefox with a helicopter instead of a jet plane. Both these books are basically chase books with international spy thriller overtones. Both of them involve the Soviet Union uh, getting the ultimate weapon. Apparently these guys hadn't heard that the Cold War is now dead. But at the time they were working, the Cold War was very much alive. These books both involve the Soviets coming up with the ultimate weapon in Flight of the Old Dog. Basically, apparently they've been sleeping with Nancy Reagan because it's Star Wars. And the idea of this one is we get an old airplane and we fly it out to blow up their Star Wars plant in Siberia. This one is, this time the ultimate Russian weapon is apparently a helicopter, which I think it could be amusing. Sort of, you know, Casper the friendly helicopter. Uh, I haven't read this one, so I don't know the ins and outs of it, but again, it's we have to get in and we have to get this weapon out, and 
as Firefox managed to make it all the way, I assume that this helicopter eventually winds up crossing the Bering Strait or possibly the Gulf of California and winding up in friendly hands. These are both interesting in that a lot of the thrill is the Tom Clancy kind of thrill, where you really better know your technology very, very well. You cannot simply sit down and write one of these on a plot because, let's face it, four or five hundred pages of a plane flying across Siberia is not that fascinating. The fascination in this kind of thriller comes out of the technology and the idea that you're getting a really good peek into what the Pentagon is really up to. The flaw, of course, is that in these books the equipment always works, and if the Pentagon has it, it never works. So you do have suspension of disbelief with these. Thrillers seem to be very hot. Uh, Lawrence Sanders, old dependable Lawrence Sanders, he's been through all the sins, he's been through all the commandments. Now I'm wondering, is, it, is this is the Timothy Files. Now are we going to have the Matthew Files, the Mark Files, the Luke Files? Or are we going to go into, are they going to start changing files and do maybe the Timothy Folder and uh, the Timothy Briefcase? Uh, I don't know, we'll see. This one is uh, good, solid Lawrence Sanders. Basically, it's a police procedural. Again, with a police procedural, you better be right on the money in what you're saying about what the police department's doing, how detectives operate, what the laws are, because the fans of these know their stuff. Either they're involved with the law or they're in trouble with the law, but either way, they know their stuff. And if you're wrong, they're going to tell you and your publisher and anyone else who will listen. Then we have Jonathan Kellerman, Over the Edge, which I also have not read. I don't read much. It's really frightening. Talking about all these books, I haven't read any of these turkeys. No, I did. I read, I read Fly of the Old Dog. Over the Edge, as far as I can make out, is a psychological thriller. And psychological thrillers are still obviously holding up very well. We don't notice Mary Higgins Clark skipping lunch anymore. Uh, basically, with a psychological thriller, the thing you really have to be careful of is that your psychology is sound, that the motivations of your characters are correct. Of course, you can always take them a little out of context and stretch them out a bit, which I did in Punish the Sinners, which involved a suicide contagion. A uh, suicide contagion is something that does indeed happen. It's when you get a bunch of teenage girls who all decide to slit their wrists one day after the next. It does, however, only happen in the setting of a mental hospital. And I didn't really see that I wanted to set an entire novel in a mental hospital, so I thought, what's the next best thing? And I thought, aha, parochial school. So. So I dreamed up a bunch of wacko priests and some quite fun nuns, and I had all the girls at the parochial school slitting their wrists and uh, was able to back it up with enough sound psychology to make it work. This basically is the list. It was interesting. As I bought them, I didn't really pay too much attention as to what was what, and then I started separating them out as to, okay, what's this, what's this, what does it fit into, and discovered that the trends have really changed radically over the last three years away from the big woman's romance and more into the international spy thriller kind of thing. Uh, I once toyed with the idea of writing an international spy thriller and I had 
dreamed up some, it had to do with a submarine, and it was going to be the greatest tax deduction in the world because naturally I was going to have to go and visit every place this submarine went. How I was going to get it up the Seine into Paris, I didn't deal with. I got as far as writing the outline, sent it to my agent, who said, of course, I will certainly submit this, but uh, there may be some problems. And then I was talking to Helen Myers one day, and she wanted to know what I'd been doing and what I was going to do, and I said, well, I'm going to write an international spy thriller. And there was silence for a moment. She said, well, John, I'm sure you'll enjoy doing that very much. But you have to understand, John, I stuck my neck out for you once. I'm not ever going to do it again. And I realized that my international spy thriller was not going to be published under my name because it was not a psychological occult thriller, and it was not going to be at the top of the Dell list. It was not going to have television advertising backing it up. And I decided, well, I guess I don't really need to write an international spy thriller after all. So having done the bestseller list, I have to consult my notes for a minute. Dear God, have I been rattling for an hour? Maybe I won't consult my notes. If anyone really wants to know about suspense fiction, I think we ought to bring that down into a much more specific area uh, in the question and answer phase. Because Oh, I just found a note to myself here. Um, Ju Judy Krantz is an interesting case. Did you, did you notice how... Immediately after Jackie Suzanne died, Judith Krantz, Judith Krantz appeared on the scene doing the same sort of thing Jackie did. Did you ever wonder whether maybe Judy Krantz really is Jackie Suzanne? <laughs> Are you thinking of writing a Jackie Suzanne book? How long do you think it will be before Judy Krantz dies and you can write a Jackie Suzanne book? <laughs> Enough for that note. <laughs> Okay, well, that's enough of me babbling questions about anything. I'm, I'm just here to, to tell you anything you might want to know. Yes. You who have never read one of my books, what is your question? Mm-hmm. Who? Ah, oh, really? He is actually dead? But who's going to write all these ten books? That's terrible. Uh-huh. Uh, probably the same person who's doing V.C. Andrews. Yes, who first? You've had your... She wants to... Uh, I, I, will, I, will, I will repeat the question... Deaf people back there in the back, move up! Yes, the question was, once again... Okay, the question is, as a California boy, how could I have written such a beautiful description of the Cape as I did in The Unwanted? Well, it certainly wasn't by being there, because I have never been there. Uh... I told you I write fiction, didn't I? I'm... I see movies. I... You know, I, I've, I read the National Geographic. Uh, 
what, what does it take? I mean, a beach is a beach. A cape is a cape. It goes down the ocean. It curves. Uh, Victorian houses are easy. All you have to do is say Victorian house. You don't even have to describe the damn thing. You say Victorian house, the reader will describe it in absolute detail. That's my favorite trick. Is I describe nothing, and I'm always given credit, credit for my wonderful descriptions. And it's not true. All I do is say the house was vaguely Victorian. Instantly the reader pictures their favorite Victorian house, and that's the house they see for the rest of the book. And I get full credit for having described it perfectly. <laughs> Same thing with people. Yes. Bless you. She's read all of her books, and she loves them, Fred. She loves them, Fred, from Bantam. Uh, she wants to know if I'm going to talk about the unloved a little bit. It's very, very difficult to talk about a psychological thriller without giving it entirely away. What I can tell you about the unloved is that it's sort of a mix of whatever happened to baby Jane, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, Psycho, and it also answers the immortal question of what really happened to Blanche Dubois after she left Stanley's apartment. Yes. A follow-up. We have a follow-up, Fred. If you look closely at the cover, hand it to me. I was asked whether I was responsible for the cover. I, I have what is known as cover consultation rights. In publishing, some authors get cover approval rights, which means you can say, I don't like that cover, do something else. I get cover consultation rights, which means that should I be in New York and in the Bantam offices and wandering by the art department at the time they're working on the cover, I may feel perfectly too free to say, my, isn't that pretty? <laughs> this cover is going to go down history. This is Lee, come up. Come up. Come take the pose. This cover is basically, this is Lee Merriweather without her makeup on. And since we have Lee Merriweather right here, you can see the resemblance quite clearly. Thank you so much. <laughs> you see? Lee Merriweather. <laughs> now, uh, as I understand it, Bantam ha hires a, an artist to do my covers, and basically what happens is that Linda Gray, who was the original editor at Dell. She was a senior editor at Dell many long years ago. She is currently the president of Bantam, is still my editor. I'm one of the few writers that has an entire career with one agent and one editor. Linda reads the manuscript, talks to the art department. Fred, feel free to tell me if I'm wrong. Gives them an idea of what is the book is basically all about and what her vision of the package is. And then they go to work and they start coming up with some piece of art. And then Linda says, I like this, I don't like this. And it goes back and forth until Linda is satisfied. She sends it out to me. And I call her up and say, I've seen the cover and it's gorgeous. Uh, I have a three by five card that says, I've seen the cover and it's gorgeous. <laughs> the only acceptable response. Uh, 
What else? Other questions? Yes. <laughs> I keep telling you I write fiction. I haven't done my autobiography. Uh, the, oh, shut up, Fred. Fred, come up and put your chair right here. You can listen to the questions. That's Fred Klein, editor from Bantam. Uh, the, quest, the question basically is, I don't seem to sound like I write. <laughs> Perhaps I should have typed the speech. Um, the, 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 I guess the, she's, she wants to know how it is that being as scatterbrained as I am, I can maintain such tight control over a manuscript. I think, isn't that basically it? Uh, There is a great myth in publishing that I have heard promulgated at every writer's conference I have ever been to, every writer's class I have ever attended, and I can tell you I ain't been to many because I don't believe. That is the line, write what you know. All I can tell you is don't write what you know, lie your head off. I'm not being paid to write comedy. God knows I would like to be paid to write comedy, but no one's paying me for that. I'm being paid to write thrillers. And while it's not personally my song, I do not read psychological occult thrillers. I have never read one of my books, except for those portions that needed rewriting. It's really not my cup of tea. That does not mean that I cannot write one, however. In fact, I suspect that I probably am better at writing them for the fact that I don't really like them, because when I'm writing one, I at least have to convince myself that all of this is really happening. I have to be able to totally suspend disbelief and write a scene, believe that whatever's going on in that scene is actually happening. This is what the character truly would do. If I don't believe the scene, I don't believe that the reader's going to believe the scene. And consequently, I have to suspend all of my total um, cynicism, I suppose, about the supernatural. I think I can write a pretty good ghost. I don't happen to believe in ghosts. I don't think I have to believe in a ghost to write a convincing ghost. What I do have to believe in is that in these circumstances, in this house, in this town, with this set of characters, at least they believe in the ghost. And as long as I can believe that, then I can get away with it. Does that, does that answer the question at all? You don't look like it does. Do you have a follow-up question? Tell it to Fred, who can't hear. <laughs> well, <laughs> every time out, I think, was it going to work this time? It's, uh, uh, yes. A million and a half copies a year is not terribly frustrating. <laughs> yes, uh, I, would, I would be lying if I said there are not other things I would like to write. I certainly have the freedom now to write practically anything I want. My income is sufficient that I certainly don't have to maintain an outside job. 
probably I would be able to find a publisher for pretty much anything that I wanted to write, although it would not be published under my name, and I thoroughly agree with that. My name, I have become over the last decade something of a brand name author. Uh, basically, my name is in large letters above the title. In fact, on The Unwanted and The Unloved, the title is damn near illegible, but you can't really miss John Saul in great big white letters above the title. When someone goes into a bookstore and picks up a John Saul book, they are expecting a certain kind of book. And I owe them the delivery of that kind of book. I would never dream of writing a comedy murder mystery and putting it out there under the name John Saul. And I would probably be able to sell half a million copies before anyone caught on. But that's half a million people I've ripped off. They didn't buy a comedy murder mystery. They wanted a John Saul novel. So while it's a trap, it's a comfortable trap. Yes. No. Absolutely not. I think that's a very cheap trick. The question is, would I allow the book to be such and such by so-and-so or John Saul writing as so-and-so or so-and-so a pseudonym of John Saul? And the answer is absolutely not. That's uh, it's putting, the, putting my name on a different kind of product. Yes. I really didn't even set out to be a novelist at all. I set out to be a playwright. Uh, my hero was always Noel Coward. I really wanted to be able to write that kind of brilliant comedy for, for theater. The question, Fred, uh, <laughs> was what would I like to write if you people didn't insist I do this for a living? <laughs> And really, comedy is what I would like to write. I'm, I'm not sure. That, having done a couple of pseudonymous comedies, all of which, um, well, I got a wonderful letter from St. Martin's Press one day saying, Dear Mr. Saul, as you are well aware, in the life of every book there is a time for publication and a time for remaindering. For your book, the time of remaindering has come. Would you like to buy them all for 35 cents on the dollar? Uh, I've done two books pseudonymously, neither of which met with any great success. Uh, I don't regret having done them. I certainly don't regret the fact that I didn't get a pot of money for them because I didn't expect a pot of money for them. I rather enjoyed them. A few other people rather enjoyed them. And it was, it was very satisfying, if not financially, in a lot of other ways. Get serious. I sell books. I don't buy books. <laughs> what am I going to do with them if I buy them? Stockpile them in the garage? <laughs> no, I, 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 as far as I'm concerned, remainders go to the remainder table. They don't go into the cellar. Pardon? Join VC Andrews? Ah, well... <laughs> If they're remaindered, that means no one wants them. <laughs> yes. It's, it's been very interesting what's happened. Yes, I certainly was never again quite put under the gun to write a novel in 30 days. 
uh, I had gotten to the point where I was no longer doing a chapter a day. I would, I was still doing a chapter a day, but I wasn't doing it every day. And I was taking weekends off and taking a break halfway through, and I have now gone back to doing it in 30 days. I, it seems that, for me at least, I need that concentration of thinking about absolutely nothing but the book, of working on it to the exclusion of everything else every day until it's done. Uh, to the exclusion of everything else, mind you, does not include working the crossword puzzle and taking a nap. Uh, I generally work about three hours a day. I've, I have worked eight hours a day and discovered that the last four hours need to be rewritten the next day. So I thought, why do that? Why not just not do it in the first place? So I seem to be edging back towards simply putting the calendar aside, sitting down, doing a chapter a day until it's done. Yeah, I write, I write at the rate of about five pages an hour. And my chapters generally run 15 pages. I try to average 15 pages. So generally speaking, it takes me about three hours to do the 15 pages. This is, a, this is something that I will never regret my months in pornography. It taught me to write fast. And I'm a great believer that fast writing is a very good thing. I think it's very possible to write a book into the ground. One. I think, I dream, I make fantasies. <laughs> Pardon me? Well, writing is a different mindset. I'm either in the writing frame of mind or I'm not. And when it's time to write the book, then I flip the switch in my brain and I pay attention to writing the book. I'm a craftsman. It's, it's what I do for a living. Yes? I'm a Robert Ludlum freak. Uh, I love international spy thrillers. I'm going to have a great good time with these spy thrillers that I have not yet read. A word processor. Yes, I, I had to go to a word processor. The question was, what do I use to write? Uh, I used to use a typewriter, as we all did. I was the first on my block to get a word processor. It became necessary for me because uh, I am a very lazy writer. And I was finding that if I had to replace a paragraph that Linda Gray didn't like, I was writing a paragraph exactly the same length so I could paste it over the old one without having to retype the whole page. Then I found myself doing the same thing with sentences, and then I decided I'd better get a word processor with an insert mode. Yeah. Pardon me? How much revising? Oh, good God. That's work. The question is, how much revising do I do before I send it off? The answer is essentially none. Uh, I generally don't even read it after I've written it. By the end of the day, I've finished the chapter, and I'm spending the evening and the next morning thinking about the next chapter. I'm not interested in what's gone on yesterday. If I get involved in fixing what went on yesterday, I won't get to what's going on today. And generally, I pack it up and I send it off to my editor and figure she's, she's a smart lady. She'll be able to tell me what's wrong. And that has led to some unique phone calls. There was one at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I woke up and picked up the phone. The book was When the Wind Blows. It was six or seven years ago. And this little voice at the other end of the phone said, I love Esperanza Rodriguez. 
and I woke up enough to realize that Esperanza Rodriguez had come in on page 398 of a 402-page manuscript, and I was in the deep, deep poo-poo. <laughs> Linda allowed us how Esperanza really should come in on page one. <laughs> so I sat down for 30 more days, and I rewrote the whole book. Yes. What is the remorse of doing something I don't seem to like? I have no remorse. Do I look remorseful? <laughs> oh, rewards. The rewards. Ever figured out the royalties on one and a half million copies? What? Besides material? I believe it was Samuel Johnson who once said, only a fool writes for any reason other than money. I believe him. As, uh, yes. Would I like to elaborate a little on my skill and technique? Thriller technique. Thriller technique. Um, I'm a great believer that plot is everything. What I hear from publishers over and over and over again is what they're looking for is a good story. And if you can come up with a good story, it doesn't matter if it has cookie crumbs and coffee stains on the letter of query. It doesn't matter if you have misspelled the agent's name. It doesn't matter whether it's double-spaced. It doesn't matter if it's hand-scrawled on two sides of the paper. Someone's going to say this is a great story and publish it. And I generally spend a lot of my energy coming up with ideas that are going to make books. And not all ideas make books. There are ideas that are great short story ideas. There are ideas that are great movie ideas. There are ideas that are great miniseries ideas. And there are ideas that are great novel ideas. And generally speaking, the idea has to have enough scope in it so that it will sustain four or 500 pages. Once the ideas come up, then you start peopling the idea with a cast of characters who are going to serve the plot. Everything in a thriller has to serve the plot. And so if you have a medical thriller, obviously you have to have doctors, and you better know your doctor stuff. You better do your research. Uh, if you're going to have a ghost story, instantly you better go to some place that has some history. Anaheim, California has no ghosts. There just are no ghosts in Anaheim. Once you have a place with some history, then you have some old-fashioned architecture. I like small towns. Small towns are wonderful for bodies because you don't have to deal with a big city police force with a bunch of smart detectives who are going to find, figure out instantly what's going on. So I trot myself off to a small town somewhere. The smaller, the better. Uh, I often like to deal with weather, so that sometimes limits me. Uh, I remember the main idea of Cry for the Strangers, the what if for Cry for the Strangers was, suppose there was an area on the coast somewhere where a combination of winds and tides affected people's biorhythms and turned them violent. And the hook of the thing was that the uh, biorhythms uh, Nobody cares anymore, but at the time, everyone loved biorhythms. That was hot. It's almost as good as CBs and truckers. 
but with, with biorhythms, the, the go point is apparently the point of birth. And you've got these three waves operating at different rates, and they all converge again at the same point, precisely 57 years, four months, and three days after birth. And lo and behold, in that book, there was this little boy who was born exactly that time after the real villain. And so it was a sort of sleight of hand number. It, uh, the biorhythms didn't actually work out very well, so I dreamed up a bunch of Indians and had them come in and do dances and slaughter people. Uh, um, I guess that's my thriller technique, is come up with a good idea, a story, and then start putting in all the trappings that's going to serve the plot. I, I often write about a well-to-do family. Well-to-do families are great. I mean, if you've got a middle-class family, mama and papa have to go to work every day, and that gets away in the way of the story. I need people around who have nothing better to do but get in trouble killing children. Uh, it's, uh, it, it, and, and, well, that requires that you have a well-to-do family, and nobody cares if rich people's children die. They deserved it, right? It's, uh, it's orphans are good in this kind of thing, too. They, orphans have no parents to miss them, so you can do away with five or six of them before anyone even notices. What else? Anything else? Yeah. God, look at the hands going up. Yes, down here. Do I only kill children? No, sometimes the children kill their parents. That's fun, too. Uh, that's, that's living out childhood fantasies. Uh, uh, no, often it's children killing children. Um, I did one book, Comes the Blind Fury, which uh, the, the idea was the title. I was, you know, how erudite all us authors like to be. So I was thumbing through my Bartlett's one day looking for erudite quotations so I too could look learned. And I came across Comes the Blind Fury, and it was the right rhythm. It's Suffer the Children, Punish the Sinners, Comes the Blind Fury. I said, there's a title for a book. Now, what do we have here? Well, obviously, we got a blind kid who's really pissed. <laughs> we, wound, we wound up with a wonderful cover. It, it, it got the cover of the Year Award. It was wonderful. It was Little Orphan Annie in a little black bonnet with blunk-out eyeballs. <laughs> magenta background and this sweet little child. Her name was Amanda. She was dead, of course. And uh, she had uh, the, the hook on that one, how it all wound up working out was that Amanda had been a, around 100 years ago. There's always something 100 years ago. And because she was blind and her friends were unkind to her, they told her to go the wrong way on the path one day and she fell into the ocean, which sort of pissed her off a little bit. So she bided her time for a hundred years until another little girl her age moved into the house and then she got even and I had a wonderful time with this sweet little girl, I think her name was Michelle, who was running around pushing all of her friends off everything in sight. I mean, they went off cliffs, out of trees, off roofs, off swings. It was just wonderful. It was a falling epic. <laughs> yes. Oh, police! Are my porn books going to be reprinted? Uh, <laughs> I certainly hope not. Hopefully all those publishers have forgotten that they have old John Saul manuscripts, which they own outright. Most of them are actually out of business. Uh, the porn racket was always kind of interesting because although you sold the books, you didn't always get the checks. If you got the checks, they didn't always clear the bank. And one of them uh, had me 
uh, called the cops on me one day when I got angry that the check hadn't arrived, so I drove out to get it, and they were not going to produce the check, so I seized their IBM typewriter. They called the cops, and the cops arrived and told me that I really couldn't take the IBM typewriter, but since I did have the contract that did say they owed me money on publication, and I did have a copy of the published book, the cops also told the people that they should write me a check, and he was going to take me to the bank. If the check was not good, he was then going to take me down and show me how to fill out a claim in small claims court. Writers do go to small claims court, you know. The money isn't usually big enough to warrant superior court. Uh, what else? Yes. <laughs> boiled. Boiled. <laughs> I get along all right with children. Uh, children are fine as long as they behave themselves. If they don't, I get even next year. <laughs> the question was, how do I relate to children in real life? And uh, I suppose as well as the next person, um, depending on who the next person is. Yes. Oh, no, no, no. Actually, I, I left Oshkosh. Uh, I finally figured out that the best thing to be said about the Midwest is it keeps the two coasts apart. So I moved to Seattle, and I've been living in Seattle ever since. Seattle's great for writers because the sun rarely comes out, and it's very easy to stay inside and face the screen when it's not a very nice day outside. We've been at this for an hour and a half. Isn't everyone getting tired of it? Well, thank you all for waiting. Thank you. Enough. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> Not mine either. I don't like Marco. You're a wonderful speaker. Well, thank you. I think you've got a humorous vein that should allow you to write a humorous script. I hope so. I certainly hope so. Very refreshing. But where were you when I needed somebody to write? Great in your breath. You can always be a stand-up. A pen. I have no pen. I'm a writer. I have no pen. Oh, thank you. Oh, I. Oh, yeah. That's the actual writing time. The thought process goes on. Oh, thank you. And you are Barbara.